Welcome to Conversations with Anne Elizabeth, the podcast inspired by my book, I'm a Registered Dietitian, Now What?, where I have the absolute joy to sit back, relax, and have a conversation about nutrition with a variety of people who share their personal story of passion and purpose, especially registered dietitians. Today's conversation is with Amy Miradal Miller, a registered dietitian who, through a variety of professional experiences, always comes back to her roots of being a farmer's daughter. When I was at Fency a few years ago, I had the privilege to be there on behalf of Kids Eat Right. On one of the days, I was assigned to work the Kids Eat Right booth, and it was Meet Your Farmer Day, with Amy being the featured farmer. I briefly was able to chat with her in between the sessions and the other conversations she was having. I was newer to Fency, and I knew Amy has made a path for herself in our profession by the acknowledgement she received that day. Amy has had an amazing career with much variety, and during our entire conversation, you can tell Amy is passionate about being a dietitian, but also experiences much joy in everything she does. Please enjoy my conversation with Amy. Well, I, I'm excited to talk with you today because I was thinking about when we first met, and I'm not for sure if you remember when we first met, but I was um, working at a Kids Eat Right booth, and I think it was in um, Atlanta, and you were the featured farmer of the booth mm. at Fancy, and that's where I initially remember us meeting, and so I remember having a conversation with you about just who you are and it was very short and brief but I wanted to learn more about you and how you got to where you are today and so I just kind of wanted to to have you share your story well I would be happy to how far back do you want me to go (laughs) well maybe take me back to just when you kind of remember you know when was being a dietitian or food and nutrition and farming and all the things that you're interested in when did that kind of get sparked in you oh Gosh, so I grew up on a farm in Northeast North Dakota, and I'm the youngest of five kids, but there's a 10-year separation between me and my closest sibling. And so I was very much the baby of the family, and I can remember like early experiences on the farm um, where there was always discussions around the dinner and supper table about the weather about farm prices, about the work that needed to be done next. And I don't think my parents ever said this overtly to me and my sister, but the message that I got was the brothers get the farm and the land and you girls go off and find something else to do. (laughs) So I never grew up thinking, I'm going to be a farmer. Um, I was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes when I was 7, and so I knew what dietitians were and the impact they could have from a very early age. And when I was in high school, the dietitian that I was seeing at that time, she said, you know, what are you thinking about for career options? And I said, well, I either want to major in chemistry so I can make perfume Or I want to major in journalism because I love writing. And she said, both awesome options, Amy, but you should think about dietetics. And I was like, oh, yeah, I could do that. Okay. So um, my sister, who's much older than me, was living in Davis, California at the time. And I told her about this conversation. And she said, oh, Amy, apply to UC Davis. They have a great nutrition program. And I did that and got in. I got my acceptance letter on my 18th birthday, which was really cool. 
And so I left small town North Dakota. I graduated with 15 other kids in my high school class and went to the University of California, Davis, and was in culture shock. Whoa, I <laughs> um, bet. Yeah, I like I'd never met anyone who was Asian before. And two of my roommates were um, Asian, one Asian American and another one Taiwanese. Um, I didn't know I needed glasses and I probably had for a long time, but I'd always sat in small classrooms where I was close to the chalkboard. And my very first day in in um, Chem 1A, I was like, wow, I can't see anything on that chalkboard. Um, but one of the glorious things about UC Davis is it's a land grant university and I could ride my bike across campus and look at cows or I could ride my bike off campus a few miles and look at a wheat field swaying in the wind. And I thought, okay, this is like a big, scary world, but it's not that different from how I grew up. So that's how I, um, you know, started my um college education and kind of expanding my worldview. And that's a, I mean, just a brave person to go from a smaller community and just say, you know what, I'm going to go for it and see what happens. Because I think a lot of people are scared to do that. Yeah. And, um, you know, I had my sister there um, near Davis and um, I felt you know, I felt like it was really glamorous to go off to California. Um, and, you know, I, I, I was scared a lot my freshman year. There were a lot of new experiences thrown at me. But after that first year, I had built up so much confidence and I'd made some amazing friends. And so I stuck with it. And um, I took five years to finish my undergrad. And then I applied for a dietetic internship. And I got the University of Minnesota Hospital and Clinics, which was awesome because I got to move closer to home and see family more often. But I realized that living without snow was really glorious. And I was um, <laughs> I was grumpy shoveling snow off my driveway during my dietetic internship and, and bundling up and all of that stuff that comes with winter. Um, so I thought, OK, well, I don't want to you know, move back to North Dakota. Or I don't want to stay in Minnesota. Um, I also realized, and this was really shocking, that I didn't want to do clinical dietetics. Um, my staff relief during my internship was in kidney transplant and having type 1 diabetes um, and seeing these people who most of whom the reason they were getting kidney transplants was because of poorly controlled diabetes. It made me very depressed. And I thought, I just can't stand over someone's hospital bed and and talk to them about choices that, that could have been made 20, 30 years before that may have had a positive impact. So I went straight into graduate school in Boston. Okay. Well, and that's understandable because I feel like a lot of, a lot of people kind of feel that same way. So I think it's great that you shared that, that it's okay that you don't want to do clinical, that you feel like it's okay to say, you know what, this just isn't for me. Yeah, but it was a really scary realization because at that point it had been almost six years, five years of undergrad, a 12 month internship thinking that was my dream to become a clinical dietitian and realizing that wasn't the right path. Um, I didn't have much of a safety net. Graduate school was just kind of a panicked um, alternative. But I will tell you, I got really, really lucky because the program that I got into was um, a new program with Tufts University, their nutrition communications master's degree. 
And I remember interviewing and it was past the application deadline and I begged my way in for an interview <laughs> and kind of begged my way in for <laughs> acceptance into the program. And I remember the um, graduate school advisor, Dr. Jean Goldberg, asking me all these questions and I couldn't really tell her what I wanted to do, but I was very certain what I didn't want to do. <laughs> and she still teases me about that to this day. Yeah. Um, one of the real blessings of that master's program is that we weren't required to write um, a master's thesis. We were required to get 400 hours of work experience in approved um, summer internship programs. And I did mine with General Mills and realized that food marketing was so much fun. And when you combined the knowledge of nutrition science with, um, you know, communications and marketing, you could have a really powerful role in helping people make informed choices about better for you foods and products in the marketplace. So um, that's what sparked my interest in food marketing. And then I finished my graduate work and ended up working in public relations when I first finished grad school. Oh, you did. So you so you really was it public relations focused on food or was it something completely different? Yeah, I actually was with Fleshman Hillard in their agribusiness division in Kansas City. And we did public relations on behalf of commodity boards and food companies. And um, being in the agribusiness division, there were um, clients who were much more closely aligned with the needs of farmers versus the consumer. But it was my first exposure to the, the big companies that are involved in agriculture in the U.S. and beyond. Um, but one of the things that happened while I was working there is that one of the clients, we were doing PR based on a single study. And I won't say who it was and what this was all about, but I felt awkward about it. And so I ended up leaving Fleshman Hillard, moving back to Massachusetts and joining a clinical research center because I wanted to dig more into research on the effects of food on um biomarkers and potential health outcomes because I didn't really believe the research we were using at the PR firm at the time. And um, I should say that that research was later replicated and that those findings were accurate, but I was very uncomfortable. I'd come out of grad school and was very virtuous in my knowledge of not making claims based on a single sure. study. And, and so anyway, so I worked in clinical research for a while and I worked for a very entrepreneurial cardiologist um, and we did studies on behalf of commodity boards and food companies and some pharmaceutical companies. And these were feeding studies. So it was using my clinical skills to get people to change their behaviors related to very strict study protocols. And I actually loved it like that. That was fun because people who volunteered for the research studies were highly motivated individuals who were interested in, in helping us advance the science in certain areas. Um, but back to my entrepreneurial boss, when I would say things like, um, Dr. Rippey, we need a better way of communicating to potential study subjects who we are and the types of research we do. Um, brochures are great, but we need a website. And he would say, great, find somebody and build the website and write the copy for it and just run it by me before it goes live. And I remember <laughs> that very meeting wow. thinking, uh, I've never built a website, managed a website development project, but I got crazy experiences like that. I also got to co-author books with him and um, I was stretched thin, but I had so many great experiences and it was an awesome way, the second chapter in my career as a follow-up to PR to work in that kind of environment. 
Well, and it kind of sounds like you got more of a positive clinical experience as opposed to the one you had in your internship. So that's a good thing. Very much so. Yeah, I still remember some of the study subjects that we worked with. And that was, gosh, more than 20 years ago, I was doing that. And, the you know, the lovely personalities and how interested they were um, in, you know, the research. And, you know, when we were blinded, we, we were sharing all the information we could with study subjects without, you know, divulging too much that would bias the results and whatnot. Mm-hmm. But it was, yeah, that was a great experience for me. I love that time in my career. Well, and I think I, I always forget about being part of a research component as a dietitian, I think, because it just doesn't get talked about a lot and how there are some great studies and some great physicians doing some great things. And we don't get to hear about that enough, I think. Yeah. Yeah. You know, in my four years with that research team, we did um, studies on behalf of five different clients. And, and, you know, it was, um, it was the business side of it. How do you pitch a research study? How do you get the funding? How do you report to your funders? So it was a lot of research training as well as business training for me. And, um, one of the research dietitians that I worked with back then, she's still one of my best friends today. And she's still working in research in Massachusetts. So I learned from her how things have advanced, you know, over the years and, you know, um, it was it was great for me to do that. But at some point, the research funding dried up and the handwriting was on the wall that there would be some staff cuts. And mm-hmm. I decided to start looking for new work. And I got an opportunity to interview with Dole Food Company in their Ooh. nutrition department. And based on my love of food marketing, when I was with General Mills that summer, um, I um, had interviewed over the phone two times and I wanted the job so badly that I quit my job in Massachusetts and moved across the country and camped out on a friend's couch for six weeks while I continued to interview with Dole. Now saying, I can come in for an in-person interview. <laughs> Anytime. Just let me know. Yeah, I'm, I'm available. I'm here. Um, and I got the job, which was a huge blessing because I'd made a huge gamble <laughs> with no safety net. Um, but yeah, I got that job and I got to work for Dole Food Company for um, nearly five years. I started out in a nutrition education position and worked my way up to be um, a director of marketing and research and um, moved from a small satellite office in the Bay Area to the world headquarters in Southern California. Um, and really like that business environment was so positive and stimulating for me. And I, I had great mentors there and wonderful bosses for the most part. Um, and when I say for the most part, the reason I left that job was a boss um, with whom I couldn't see eye to eye on any issue. <laughs> oh, jeez. Not good. <laughs> no, no. It was, very, it was very sad to leave that company and leave that job. But I saved my sanity um, and um, then got an opportunity to work for the Walnut Growers of California I was the director of marketing for North America and the global research director for the California Walnut Commission. Um, And that's when I got closer and closer to the farmers growing our food. And the men and women part of the California walnut industry are um, nearly all family farmers. They live on the land. They have walnut trees on their property as well as huge groves near their home farmsteads. And um, I was really proud to do that work and, and, you know, Loved, loved that job. Probably that was the best job I've had in my career, second only to what I'm doing today. 
Sure. Well, and I think, like you said, that sounds like where you started making the connection with all your past experiences, your PR, your research, but then also that farmer component and getting to know where our food, why it's so important to know where our food comes from and what our farmers are doing to, you know, ensure safe food and all that kind of science behind farming. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I got to appreciate the close relationship that marketing orders and commodity boards have with USDA. I got to see the oversight from both federal authorities as well as state authorities. Um, I got to see the, you know, financial investment farmers were willing to make in health research to show how important their product, walnuts, are to human health. Um, it was, yeah, it was powerful. And I'm, you know, I'm proud I had that experience in my past. And, you know, I have a better understanding because of it, of how all the other commodity boards and marketing orders work. And that's, it's complex business. There's, um, there's so much oversight of those entities and they do great work to, you know, provide a market for the products the farmers are growing to provide the research to support claims on nutrition and health benefits. And so many of our dietitian colleagues are in those positions all across the country doing amazing work, often behind the scenes. So I think it's great to shed light on, on our colleagues in those roles. Well, and I think that's a great thing. And maybe you can talk a little bit more. So maybe some of the listeners that don't know exactly what, I feel like there's a lot of young dietitians that aren't really familiar with what commodity boards are how they work with the farmers. I think that would be a great thing to just kind of discuss a little bit. Yeah. So there, there are things called federal marketing orders. And this is when the federal government says, um, we're going to put essentially a tax or a, a, an assessment on your crop. And it varies by crop, whether it's by, by weight or some other measure, but it's um, a price that the farmers pay to contribute to a collective effort to market a product. So this is done for lots and lots of fruits and vegetables, for um, pork and dairy and beef, um, walnuts, almonds, peanuts. I mean, many, many crops fall under this. And then um, there are some that have state-level programs in addition to or as an alternative to a federal program. Um, the funds can be used in various ways. The one way they can't be used is for lobbying. Um, they can be used to develop markets in foreign countries. So, for example, when I was at the Walnut Commission, we were using funds to develop markets for walnuts in Spain, in Germany, in Japan, Korea. Um, today, the markets have expanded to China and India. And so um, that means that you're working in collaboration with partners at USDA and agency partners in those foreign countries to develop those markets. Um, what else can I tell about it? Um, I mentioned earlier that there's a lot of oversight. So anything that you're putting out there in terms of marketing language or claims is reviewed by people at USDA. Um, they have to be like any sort of marketing in food, truthful and not misleading. They can't disparage another commodity. So even if you are, have a major competitor out there, you can't say something negative about that competitive product. You have to be truthful. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a very high level of marketing and oversight. And it's, um, it's, it's a great thing. It's a great thing for the farmers. It's a great thing for our food system. And I would, I, I would definitely agree with that. And I think, 
I always kind of thought commodity groups too also help. I think they influence the hiring of dietitians. Do you feel that a little bit kind of coincide? Um, well, you know, almost every um, commodity group has dietitians on staff and they have agencies that have dietitians on staff. So it's a, it's a significant source of employment for our profession. Mm-hmm. And that's what I kind of, I didn't know if it was, if that helped encourage them to hire dietitians or if it was just something that there is just a, a known value to have a dietitian or consult with a dietitian as being, um, you know, one of those commodity groups. You know, you're asking an awesome question, Anne, because um, I've, you know, I'm not sure how it all started. Probably started with dairy. National Dairy Council is more than 100 years old, and that was established with a mandate to do nutrition education to educate the public on the benefits of dairy. And the nutrition education, the the credentialed experts to lead that were dietitians. So I'm making an assumption here based on their history. Um, but I suspect that's what led the other groups to say, we too need dietitians to help tell the nutrition story in a responsible and motivating manner to the public. So I'm going to give Jerry credit today, but I don't have anything to base that on. <laughs> and I didn't know that. So I think that's a great, great piece of information to share. And I also, I maybe, and maybe you don't want to talk about this either, but I sometimes question some dietitians out there, I think, struggle with some of the studies that are put on by commodity groups saying, oh, well, you know, obviously this is a study and beef supports it. So I wonder why they're supporting, supporting this study. And like you said earlier, you mentioned, you know, there's lots of science. They put a lot of effort into the research studies that they do. And it's not meant to be skewed just because of the commodity group supporting the study. Yeah, you know, um, part of the, the mandate of many of these organizations is that they some of the funds go to support research, whether that's research that benefits the farmer on different varieties for different growing conditions, different post-harvesting technologies. Um, but the, then the other part of that is nutrition research, because if you're going to do nutrition education and you want to make claims about potential benefits or claims about nutrient content of foods that you're representing, you have to have the research to back it up. So there's a federal mandate for these groups to fund research, um, to use those assessment dollars to fund research. And, you know, so this is a long history of the government um, basically saying some of the money has to be used to do this. But we also have a shifting history in government funding to provide independent support for researchers to do nutrition research. There is less and less money coming out of the National Institutes of Health for example, to fund nutrition research. And so the commodity boards and marketing orders that continue to support research help us expand our understanding of different dietary patterns and the roles that certain foods and nutrients play in health promotion. And I, for one, am very grateful that there is so much nutrition research leadership among the commodity boards and marketing orders and that that research is not only being funded here in the U.S., but at leading academic institutions around the world. So I think it's a very positive thing. And um, yeah, for any of our colleagues out there who are questioning the integrity of the research, um, you know, I kind of find that offensive. Researchers around the world rely on external funding sources unless they have some massive endowment. Mm-hmm. Um, but the vast majority rely on external funding sources. And when government funding is drying up, thank goodness that industry um, and commodity boards and whatnot are providing that funding to expand our knowledge of nutrition. 
I agree hundred percent. So yes, that's such a good, good explanation of all of that. And I'm, I'm thankful for that. You for you provided that information. So now we can go back to though, you're, you're an expert, obviously, in a lot of these different things. So after you kind of exited your role with the Walnut, the Walnut Commodity Board, what, what was the next steps? How did you figure out your next steps as a dietitian? <laughs> it's the craziest part of my career story. <laughs> um, the Walnut Board had eliminated my position and I had a month of time to wrap up projects and, and let all of my agency people know there was going to be a transition and whatnot. And I'd been negotiating a sponsorship agreement with the Culinary Institute of America. Um, the, the Walnut Commission wanted to support a program there to introduce walnuts to food service professionals to expand usage in restaurants across this country. And so um, I needed to call the gentleman that I was working on the sponsorship agreement with. And, and I told him, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to make this call today. I just found out a few days ago they've eliminated my position. Um, there's going to be a transition plan. I don't know what it is yet, but um, I can't move forward with the sponsorship agreement. And the gentleman I was speaking with said, wow, that's great. And I remember getting tears in my eyes because I was I was frustrated and I was sad. I was losing my job and I blurted yeah. out, it's not great. I've lost my job and you're not getting the money. <laughs> and he said, oh, no, 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 no. I'm sorry. He, he goes, I can see why you misunderstood me. It's great because we're creating this new position and I'd love for you to come interview for it. And oh so I, di I did a few interviews and then I got a six week consulting contract. And I think that was like, we think she's a great candidate, but let's give her a consulting contract to make sure that she's a great fit with our team. And after, at the end of that six week contract, I got a full time job offer. And then another funny conversation happened. I actually turned down the offer and the HR manager said, my gosh, we thought you were so interested in this job. Why are you turning it down? And I said, well, I can't afford to move from Sacramento to the Napa Valley. I just bought a home. Um, I can't afford to sell it. I, I couldn't afford to buy anything in the Napa Valley. I can't imagine driving two hours each way. I'm, I'm so sorry. And mm -hmm. she said, oh, uh, did I forget to mention we need you to work from home the first six months? We um, don't have any more office space, so we were hoping you'd agree to start working with us and work out of a home office. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Perfect. And I said, that would be awesome. And then I thought, well, I got six months to figure out the next step. Well, because I managed working from home so well, I got to keep that privilege for, for my entire seven years with the college. Oh, my. So what was your role then with the Culinary Institute? So I was a senior director of programs in culinary nutrition. I oversaw um, 13 different continuing education programs while I was there. When I started, we were doing four of them a year. And these were conferences and leadership retreats for volume food service professionals focusing on world cuisines and culture, sustainability and modern agriculture, um, health and wellness, and... Um, uh, during my seven years there, we went from four events a year up to 13. Um, I did get to hire another dietitian to work with me during that time. Um, and I got to do programming for conferences in the Napa Valley, um, the college's Singapore campus, the San Antonio, Texas campus, as well as the, 
main campus in Hyde Park, New York. But I will tell you, going from four a year up to 13, I was so stressed out um, by the time I left the college. I couldn't sleep through the night. I just, I, there wasn't enough time in the day. And I basically left, not because I didn't love the work, but because I was so burned out. I had Very kind cool. of lost myself. Well, and that's, that's a huge jump in numbers when you go, like you said, from four to 13, and then you're planning all the programming all over the country. That is a mm-hmm. lot to do. Yeah. You know, when I started, four was a good number. It was a steep learning curve. I had a lot to learn about every aspect of that job. But once I did a conference one or two times, you know, you got that one figured out. You know what works. You know what works for the audience. You know how to attract the audience and market the event. Um, and things got easier, but new stuff kept getting added on, which made the job really fun for me. I, I get bored easily. Um, so I had, had to keep pushing myself to learn, learn, learn and, and do more and be more creative and more strategic. But at some point there just, I didn't have any bandwidth left for anything. And I was, I was, my diabetes was suffering. My sleep was suffering because, um, I just was so stressed out all the time. I wasn't a very nice wife. And so four years ago, I made the decision to leave that job and to start my own business. And starting my own business had been a long goal, a long desire. Um, But I didn't really do it for the right reasons. I did it because I was leaving something that just wasn't working anymore. But thankfully, four years into running Farmer's Daughter Consulting, it's the best move I've ever made in my career. I love so much being the boss. I love doing work that directly impacts farmers and the understanding of modern agriculture. I love setting my own schedule. I love opportunities like this to um, have discussions with fun colleagues about issues that are important to me. And, you know, I'm just, I've never been happier in my career. I couldn't have um, made a better move. Well, and you've had so many interesting experiences that I guess for me, when I met you, it just seemed like the right fit that you were a business owner, that you had your own business and that you were doing all these things based on your past experiences from your jobs. Yeah, I, I kind of take something from all of my past positions as someone's employee and integrated into the work I do today. And when I started this, one of my mentors said, the best advice I can give you is to say yes to everything especially the things that scare you most. And even saying this to you right now, um, it kind of makes me bristle a little bit because it sounds so uncomfortable. Um, I have done a lot of really uncomfortable things over the past four years and have been really stressed out at times, but I've had success and that's built my confidence and has allowed me to say yes to the next scary request um, or demand in some cases. And um, I keep building on that and I keep refining, you know, where can I use my time and my passion and energy for things that are going to have the most impact. Um, and some of the work that I do for clients, it's it's lovely, it's doable, it's enjoyable, but it's not pushing me. Um, but the majority of what I'm doing does push me and challenge me and keep me really invigorated. So when you, you mentioned your passion, so when you started your business and you were you decided, you know, you said it wasn't like, you know, thought out and well planned. But when you kind of started your business off, what was your initial passion and what kind of drove you to starting your own business? 
Well, one of the blessings of working for the Culinary Institute of America and planning and running all of those conferences is that I stood at a podium at a microphone in front of large crowds a lot. And I got really comfortable with that. So one of my goals when I started the business was to do more public speaking. And when we met, the reason that I was at that booth at Fancy in the Farmer booth is because I'd been invited by the Academy Foundation to join a group called the RD Farmer and Agriculture Committee. And that allowed me opportunities to co-develop presentations with other dietitians involved in agriculture around the country, to present them at affiliate meetings, and to be on stage a lot. And even though I was comfortable with doing that at the CIA, getting up and talking to dietitian colleagues around the country can be really intimidating. Um, I also find talking to kindergartners really intimidating, but you know, I've gotten more and more comfortable with dietitian audiences and now I'm moving on to other professionals and talking more to chefs and product marketers and um, people in the animal agriculture industry and, you know, stretching to new audiences and finding what's the right tone, what's the right message, what's the science that's going to move an issue or initiative forward in a positive way for farmers and for society as a whole. So, um, yeah, that was an early opportunity given by the foundation that I said yes to, even though I thought, wow, I shouldn't be volunteering my time when I'm trying to start my own business. <laughs> but I'm so glad I did that because I've met so many awesome people and, and um, gotten opportunities to practice skills and, and polish skills through various initiatives. And so you that's still a pretty big component of your business is going around and speaking, correct? It, it is. Yeah. And um, I also, when I first started my business, the National Dairy Council called and said, we'd love for you to be an ambassador. And that means that regional and state dairy associations around the country call on me to help them with events and do public speaking. Um, I have lots and lots of clients that will ask me to do public speaking on their behalf or will support me when I'm speaking to various audiences. Um, so yeah, public speaking probably makes up a third of my business today and I love it. I often joke that if I could be a professional speaker and if that was all I'd do, I'd be super happy. Um, however, it requires a lot of travel and so that wouldn't make my husband very happy. He likes when you're home, huh? <laughs> he likes when I'm home. Absolutely. <laughs> and so, so you said that's about a third. What's the other two thirds of your business? Kind of what are you focusing on? Um, I, because of my work at the CAA, I'm really good at planning events and planning the strategy for content for different audiences. So I have a number of clients who have me help them plan conferences, meetings, special events. Um, I also do quite a bit of writing. Um, so copywriting for clients with a marketing focus, but making sure the nutrition is right. Um, blogging. I write for a magazine called Produce Business, which is for the produce industry, both on the retail side and the grower, shipper, packer side. Um, and what else do I do? That's that's kind of the sum lot. total of it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and I do recipe development for clients as well. So, yeah, I'm often um, in my local supermarket shopping and, and then developing recipes. I didn't know you did development of recipes, too. Gosh, where yeah. do you find the time for all of this in one day? Um, well, my calendar has eight days every week and 30 hours a day. So, <laughs> well, you have a very special calendar. 
<laughs> no, you know, I'm really efficient. Um, and also, you know, I work, um, you know, when I'm not traveling, I'm home alone in what I call my protective bubble. Um, I'm not distracted by water cooler conversations or I'm not going to superfluous meetings. I have almost full control over my schedule and I'm very efficient and I've got lots of systems in place to um, keep me efficient. And I've got people, um, you know, who help me like, you know, I have a bookkeeper and I have an accountant. And so I'm running the business, but I'm not doing everything that it takes to run a small business. Sure. Well, that's, and I think it's always a good message when you do have your own business. I mean, you do probably feel like you work eight days a week, 30 hours a day because it never closes. Right. And and, it, and there is the perks of, you know, an upcoming vacation here and there and, and uh, having some time off for you, which hopefully you're scheduling in on a regular basis. Yeah. Um, the past three summers, my boss has made a rule um, that... Friday afternoons are time for doing whatever I want. This summer, I haven't been able to do that yet because I've been traveling every Friday and I will be gone again this Friday, but that will start in July. So Friday afternoons off. Um, what else do I do to protect myself? Um, I started watercolor painting this spring. So at the end of a workday, I either go to the gym and, um, Zen out there during my workouts, or I am watercolor painting and and blissfully happy doing that as kind of an escape from the pressures of of my work world. Um, yeah, so you know I have lots of different techniques, but you know I find the joy that I get in running my own business. It's very energizing and inspiring. I don't feel like I need to be rejuvenated as much as I did when I was someone's employee. And had more pressure and and maybe more frustration. Do you feel like, but when you when you kind of look back of having your your own business now, do you feel like all your experiences in your past were necessary to get to this point of you being able to run a successful business and having that balance? I think I was always wired to be my own boss. Having grown up on a farm, farmers are entrepreneurs, um, you know, and I saw how my dad and later my brothers managed their businesses. Um, my mom also very entrepreneurial. She was also a politician. So, um, oh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> so I had some good training there <laughs> Yeah, um, in terms of managing your public persona. Um, and in a small community, that's a big deal when you're in politics. Um but yeah, I think I could have always been successful on the business side, but because I waited until I'd been working for others for 20 years, I had this huge network of people who already knew me, had seen me do work in various areas, knew my personality, knew my stage presence. And I have been really, really blessed in um, getting business, not through competitive bidding and out there being scrappy and fighting for every new account, but having people come to me because, um, because they already know me, you know, working at the CIA for seven years, I worked in a group that was fully sponsored by outside entities. None of the programming that we did was supported by academic funds from the college. And so I had exposure to lots of people from the commodity boards and marketing orders and food companies and restaurant companies. And then on the flip side, I've spent a lot of time volunteering within dietetics. I've been involved in the food and culinary professionals practice group since 2003. Um, 
I, you know, served on the foundation committee. I now serve on the foundation philanthropy committee. I am involved in the California Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics. I've served at the district level and state level. And so I have lots, I have this very rich network of people from all parts of my career and life and professional and um, volunteer leadership. And, and that's another thing that helps develop business, being involved, saying yes, giving of your time, whether or not there's money attached to it. There's a positive outcome um, that comes with saying yes and giving of yourself to your profession. I agree. And I think, and I feel, don't you feel in our community and our profession too, it, our connections, you know, we have that thing that brings us together, being dietitian and some type of a food component, whether it be farming or cooking or, you know, whatever we enjoy, but just that opens the door and then you can shine with whatever you like and whatever you do. And that's where you kind of can create those connections that lead to job opportunities or lead to consulting opportunities or speaking opportunities. Absolutely. Every time I meet a student or dietetic intern, my first piece of advice, if they ask for it, is get involved in um, your association at a local level, at a state level, through the DPGs, find your home in dietetics, get involved, use that to network, find your tribe who will support you as you're trying to grow your career, grow your professional presence. Um, and yeah, I still see that today. I'm now volunteering my time outside of dietetics with a group called La Dames de Scoffier, which is still very much food focused, but it's all women who've been involved in food, wine, hospitality, running restaurants, owning and operating hotels, writing cookbooks. And that's another source of, you know, professional enrichment and creating a new tribe um, from which I'm learning and growing and getting some business opportunities. That sounds really, that sounds like a perfect group for you to be a part of. <laughs> it is. It is. Yeah. Yeah. And you get to meet some different people, which I think for you, it kind of sounds like, you know, you, like, you love dietitians, but you also like to meet all those other individuals that you can work with that isn't necessarily a dietitian. Absolutely. Um, in La Dames de Scoffier, in our local chapter here in Sacramento, I have two very dear fellow board members who are also friends and mentors. One wrote for the Seven Sisters. She was part of the, the big food writing world back in the 70s and 80s when women's magazines were all the rage. And she, you know, coaches me on kind of content development and strategy for communication. And then my other dear friend and mentor is head of the UC Davis Honey and Pollination Center. And she has conferences and invites me to speak. So I get in front of audiences of beekeepers and honey marketers and specialty foods sellers and producers. And she's so lovely to me, um, encouraging me to keep digging deeper into the benefits of honey and the science of honey. And um, having grown up on a farm in North Dakota where beekeepers kept bees on our land, I just ate oh. the honey and enjoyed it and didn't think much beyond that. So, yeah, I'm, I'm finding all these new opportunities and, and passions and pursuits in terms of um, professional development and information I find inspiring. Well, that's, that's, and that is, so. I think that's what keeps your, like, your mojo going. Like, you just want to keep, yes. you just want to keep <laughs> doing things and learning things and meeting new people. And I think, like, when you own your own business, you don't have those, you know, coworkers that are sitting next to you to chat with. So you kind of have to go find them. Yes. Yes. So what do you see for the future of your business? 
Oh, that is the scariest of all the questions, Anne. Um, you know, I hope for future success and joy. Um, I don't have a big business plan strategy for the next three to five years. I just kind of keep humming along and saying yes. Um, and hope is not a good strategy, but I sincerely do hope I can continue to do work I love and be fairly compensated and, and have the energy and bandwidth to give back to my profession. Um, I would love to write a book, not a cookbook, um, but a book about what it means for me to be a farmer's daughter and why I'm so proud of that heritage and kind of dedicate that to my dad, who, gosh, wow. passed away nearly 20 years ago. Um, I would love to get braver about being on camera and doing videos because, blah, who wants to read anymore? Everybody just wants to click <laughs> the play button, girl. right? <laughs> um, you know, so there's there's things I want to do. It's like, okay, how can I get an opportunity and be brave enough and work with people who will coach me and help me find how I can be my best in those environments? Um, I will tell you one thing I don't want to do, and I, I shouldn't say this. I don't want to do a bunch of webinars because it's so hard for me to speak without an audience. I give so much energy to the nothingness of a webinar, um, but I know it's the most efficient way to share information and I probably will get more opportunities. And please, if someone hears this, think, oh, I'm not going to ask Amy. Never mind. Ask me. <laughs> I'll do it. Um, but I love the joy and energy of a live audience. So I hope I get more opportunities to be in front of live audiences. And, and help um, share my insights and information that helps them with their goals, whether it's changing the behavior of patients and clients or managing their business or whatnot. Well, and you are, you did come to the Iowa Academy. And I think the best part about you is your personality and the energy you provide to a room. So <laughs> I do feel like that will come out in a webinar, though, too. I still feel like you will provide that same energy. <laughs> Oh, I definitely am a pretty um, passionate, squirrely speaker, no matter what the setting. Yeah, I just don't get anything back in a webinar. So I That's give it true. all and don't get don't I get replete or I don't get repleted. I get depleted. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, I and I was going to say, I think you're when you said I need to say I want to say yes more. I think that's a great business plan. Just saying yes, because that's the hardest thing to do. So I think you've got a I think you've got a good business plan going on. <laughs> Thanks, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> well, and as as far as, you know, people that don't really know a lot about you or a lot about, you know, all the great things that you educate dietitians on, that's kind of the reason why I wanted to have you on, just because you do represent such a unique part of the dietetics world. You know, what would you say to the dietitians that aren't very familiar with all the behind the scenes work that you do? What would you like them to know? Well, um, everybody's welcome to visit my website, farmersdaughterconsulting.com. I share lots of information about the work I've done, the clients I work with, my history, my career. Um, in terms of what else I would like people to know beyond that, I have in my office, and I'm looking at it right now, it is a wooden piece of artwork that says, do what makes you oh so happy. And that is my daily mantra because our world, I think, is getting increasingly divisive and mean and hateful. 
And I think if we can give happiness and love to the world, and I don't mean this in a Pollyanna-ish way, <laughs> I mean this sincerely, share more compliments, share more smiles, do what makes you happy so that you can honestly put a smile on your face and share that with the world. If something brings you joy, tell the person who brought that to you. Last night, my husband and I went out to try a new restaurant. It was amazing. And I made a point before we left to ask if I could step into the door of the kitchen and tell the kitchen team how much I love the food. And it was a team of all men, five of them back there, hot, red-faced. Kitchens are intense environments. And I shared praise with them. And every one of them lit up like a 100-watt light bulb with these huge wow. smiles. And then as we were leaving the restaurant... Um, one of the line cooks was coming back into the restaurant after a break and I gave him a hug and thanked him. And he too was caught off guard, but smiled and said, <laughs> no one ever thanks us directly. That just made my week, you know? So yeah. that's what I'd like more people to do. Be mm, giving, giving joy and happiness to someone else shouldn't take anything away from you. It should increase your happiness. Oh, that is lovely. I just makes me just have a girl crush on you even more amy <laughs> oh you get girl crushes too so I fun <laughs> <laughs> that's oh that's great thank you for sharing that i really think that's great to kind of put just a little bit more of your personality behind your name and and to let people know more about you so that's wonderful when i've asked you a lot of hard questions are you ready for a few easy questions sure <laughs> okay um what is some foods that you enjoy I know you had a great meal the other night, but are there some regular ones that you really enjoy? Oh, okay. I love crab so much. And that was one of the things we had last night, a Dungeness crab pasta dish with this beautiful lemon butter sauce. Bananas crazy. So ridiculous. But I love cracking crab. I love eating crab, 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 crab. Um, what else? I love mangoes. Oh, my gosh. And like eating a mango and having the juice dripping down my arms and my face. Um, I have to eat mangoes in private, right? Because it's kind of this messy, <laughs> not so awesome for public display experience. Um, I love coffee. I, I get up every morning excited about my first cup of coffee. Um, I love freshly baked bread. And the best is on the farm when my mom grinds oh. her own wheat and makes her honey whole wheat bread. And it's warm. And you slather it with butter. And so your mom's smiling because sh she's watching you enjoy the bread that she made. <laughs> um and I should tell you, my mom has some pretty badass arms because of her kneading the bread. And she's 89 years old. She also uses Nordic walking poles when she's walking in North Dakota in the winter. So she has guns like Michelle Obama. Amazing. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, yeah. What else do I love? Um, we have a Traeger smoker and I love smoke tri-tip. Um, I love roasted red bell peppers. I it, like, Anne, do you want me to stop? Cause how long is the podcast? I could go on and on and on. You love, well, no, I love to hear that. It's so like you mentioned the crab. I'm like, well, that's probably why she went to Boston to go yeah. to graduate school. Cause she just wanted to eat crab. Yeah. And my favorite restaurant in grad school was the barking crab. So go figure. <laughs> well, and so my next question was your favorite beverage, which is coffee. It sounds like. Well, Do you have other favorite, favorite beverages? Okay, what time of day are we talking? Because right Anytime. now... We can start with the water. morning. It's water right now. So what, what about it's, 7 o'clock? <laughs> uh, PM? Yes, PM. PM. Um, an IPA, West Coast style, all the citrus hop notes, um, or Sauvignon Blanc. 
or a Moscow Mule made with sugar-free ginger beer. Uh, yeah, again, the list could go on and on and on. But Moscow Mules right now are the thing because our mint won't stop growing. So I can't make the oh. Moscow Mules fast enough. You have, mint, you have mint in your regard. That's it. Oh, I love mint. It's so refreshing. In a uh, yes. Favorite scent or a smell that you like? Oh, wow. I think when you're peeling a piece of citrus fruit and those citrus aromas, like when you're on an airplane and somebody has an orange yeah. and all of a sudden you're like, oh, I I, yeah, that's just the best. Or a squeeze <laughs> of lemon in a glass of water or, um, you know, making the Moscow mule and putting the lime in there, all those citrus aromas. Yum, yum. And then I know you've mentioned quite a few things that bring you joy, but what really brings you joy at the end of the day? Hmm. Probably a hug and a kiss from my husband and a purring cat on my lap. (laughs) That sounds pretty heavenly, I have to say. Yeah. Yeah. One of the weird things that happens to me when I travel is I walk into hotel rooms at the end of long days and I expect a cat to greet me. I don't expect my husband to be there, but always in my mind, I'm like, where's the kitty? Oh, I'm not at home. There is no kitty. So, yeah. (laughs) Maybe that's something they should start. You could like rent a kitty for a hotel (laughs) <laughs> I would pay almost any price for that on some of my trips. <laughs> it has been a joy talking to you today, and I'm so glad we connected. And I look forward to continuing seeing you along the dietitian path and just seeing all the great things that you're doing. And this was so much fun for me. Thanks for a fun, energizing conversation. I can't wait for the next one. This past year, I also had the joy to listen to Amy present at the Iowa Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics annual meeting, and she was fantastic. You can actually listen to her presentation on the Iowa Academy website, which is eatrightiowa.org, and she has the best energy with a tad bit of humor and tons of science-based information that every dietitian can use. To learn more about Amy's business, go to her website, Farmer's Daughter Consulting. My website, AnnaElizabethArty.com, is where you can read the latest post in my Nutrition Nosh blog that houses all the great stories of my current adventures, some food I'm noshing on, the music making up my playlist in my life, and maybe a really delicious Real Deal recipe. As always, I like to share with you what I'm loving right now, and you can find all my previous podcast show notes and links to things we talked about during all my conversations with these inspiring people. If you are into reading, which I hope you are, you can also purchase my book from the website. And I hope we can connect more through social media by finding me on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and Pinterest at Ann Elizabeth RD. Remember to be great, always find the joy in each day and to start a conversation that truly matters.